All right. Well, we have just three weeks left. It's hard to believe we're just about at the end of this particular class. And so we are on the final uh, step of that four-point outline, if you will, the uh, love, know, speak, do. That's what we'll be covering uh, this lesson and next week. Uh, And then the final uh, Sunday morning, we'll be doing more of a kind of overview um, and uh, maybe talk some case studies. I haven't quite nailed down what we're going to do, but there's, there's no lesson in the curriculum for that final week. So we'll get to play around and decide what we want to do. We have three Sundays left. Three more. Okay, this one. No, two more after this. Oh, two more. After yeah. This. Okay, yeah. thank you. Yeah. So just to kind of bring all of our collective memories together as to where have we gone throughout the course, uh, I just want to read you the main ideas uh, from each of the lessons uh, that we've talked about in this course. Uh, so in lesson one, week one of this class, we... Uh, talked about how to be human is to need truth outside of ourselves, right? That our need for help is not the result of the fall, it's the result of God's design for us as human beings to be dependent on Him. And so even though most of the help that we need as sinners is a result of the fall, at the same time, uh, we don't have the resources in ourselves uh, by design to uh, find the solutions to our problems. God has given us Himself, his spirit, his word, each other, so that we could grow uh, and overcome and endure the challenges of this life. In lesson two, we learn that whatever rules the heart will exercise inescapable influence over life and behavior, right? It's all about the heart. The heart is the control center of life. It's out of the overflow of the heart that the, that the mouth speaks, that the, the life is lived, and so uh, until we've gotten down to the level of the heart in understanding the beliefs, the desires and values, the uh, commitments, the will, we haven't really understood a person. We haven't understood ourselves. Uh, it's not just about the external behavior. It's about the heart. And so that's, uh, that's the, the central core uh, of everything in life. In lesson three, we learn that we have been united with Christ And indwelt by the Holy Spirit so that we can say no to the passions and desires of the sinful nature. That as unbelievers we were enslaved to sin, but as believers we are now freed from that slavery and we can now say no. We we can't ever say as a believer, I can't stop sinning. I can't endure. A believer cannot say that. We might feel that way. But we, we can't actually say that because it's not true. By the power of the Holy Spirit within us, we can uh, overcome sin. We can endure suffering when we take advantage of the resources that He's given us. And of course, being united with Christ, that uh, brings us into uh, a new uh, identity and a new life that we have. Uh, in lesson four, we learn that God has called us to be His ambassadors, faithfully representing His method, uh, message, method, and character. So God didn't call us in this life to just live however we want, but He called us now to be His servants, His ambassadors, His ministers in the world. Uh, He doesn't just call pastors and leaders in the church to be servants. He calls every one of us. Uh, Once a person comes into the kingdom of Christ, they are now not just a citizen, they are an ambassador. And so in the relationships that we have uh, in our life, family relationships, work relationships, school relationships, community relationships. God intends 
you to be a steward of those relationships for the glory of Christ and to be a minister of the truth in those relationships. And then in lesson five, we learn that we must seek to build loving relationships in which uh, the work of God can thrive. So this is where we started into the love, no speak, do. That if we want to be an agent of change in another person's life, if, if we as a person in need of change want to help another person in need of change, we have to start by cultivating a loving relationship. And that loving relationship uh, involves getting into the person's world, knowing them well, loving them as Christ has loved us. In, loving, in Lesson 6, we learn that God called us to suffer so that we will be qualified agents of compassion and comfort. And remember uh, 2 Corinthians 1.3, which says that the God of all comfort, Father of mercies, has comforted us in our affliction so that we will be able to comfort others in any affliction with the comfort with which we've been comforted by God. And so uh, our ability to minister uh, in large part, or at least in part, rises out of our own uh, suffering and uh, the, the comfort that we have experienced in Christ. In Lesson 7, we learn that we need to ask questions to move us beyond the casual and help us to know when a person needs ministry. So this is getting into the speak portion of it, where if we're going to be helpful in another person's life, we have to ask questions. We have to draw out from the person uh, what their thinking is, what their situation is, trying to understand their world, and uh, so we can have a, a clear picture to know how to minister the truth of God in an accurate and in a faithful way. We don't want to speak into the dark. We don't want to speak based on assumptions. We need to ask questions. And then in Lesson 8, we learn that we function as God's instruments of change by helping others think biblically about their situation and relationships, thoughts, motives, and behavior. So again, through the through the use of our mouth, we not only ask questions, but then we bring the truth to bear and hold up the Word of God as a mirror, as it were, uh, so that we can see ourselves rightly and uh, compare ourselves to God's standards. And then in Lesson 9, we learn that confront, confrontation must always be rooted in the comfort and call of the Gospel. <laughs> I was in a conversation with uh, some folks last Sunday night, and uh, we were just talking with one another, and it just dawned on me that last Sunday morning I totally forgot to uh, bring greater emphasis to that reality of the comforts of the gospel and the centrality of the gospel in the counsel that we give. Uh, so if we have time, we'll do that a little bit this morning. But whenever do we have time beyond the plan? <laughs> we'll see. Uh, but the gospel is central in uh, the ministry that we have toward others, because we constantly need to be reminding each other about the work of Christ in our lives, the implications of the gospel, our identity in Christ, uh, and, and all that comes with that. Uh, in Lesson 10, we learn that to, to confront means to lead people to consider, confess, commit, and change. Remember, we talked about those four steps. Consider just looking at their situation from God's perspective, confessing, saying the same thing that God says about their situation, uh, co uh, committing, uh, turning the mind and, and saying, this is now the direction I want to head away in, in, the, in the direction that's honoring to the Lord, and then change, putting that into practice. All right, so that brings us to today, where we start that do portion 
of it. And just, just to start with a scripture, we're not going to look at a lot of passages today, but just to start with something, I want you to turn with me to James chapter 2. A familiar passage, but it's good to be reminded of it in the context of this class. Um, that uh, when we think about the Christian life, uh, the Christian life is not simply about what we believe, it's about living out what we believe. Uh, and just to, to read through it and make a couple comments, verse 14, starting there, James chapter 2, James writes, What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, Go in peace, be warmed and filled, without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? So also, faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. But someone will say, You have faith, and I have works. Show me your works, rather, show me your faith apart from your works, and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that God is one, you do well, even the demons believe and shudder. Do you want to be shown, you foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless? Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? You see that faith was active along with his works, and faith was completed by his works. And the scripture was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness, and he was called a friend of God. You see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. And in the same way, it was not also Rahab, the prostitute, justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way. As the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works is dead. Now we understand that what James is teaching here is not that we are saved by our works, that our works contribute in any way to our justification, to earning the forgiveness that God has granted to us in Christ. Our works have nothing to add to the treasury of merit that has been brought to us. Uh, the, the merit that earns us salvation is 100% the work of Christ and Christ alone, right? Not our own. But what James is saying here is that if a person has truly been justified, if they've been truly forgiven, that necessarily leads to a change of life. Uh, you can't experience all of what a, a person experiences in, at salvation, justification, ad adoption, new creation, New citizenship, new future. Uh, you know, we talked about some of those things, was it last week? Uh, uh, when, with regard to what is eternal life. You can't experience those things truly and not have your life change. Not have your whole perspective on life change. And then have it worked out in the practicalities of, of daily life. And so it is with this whole issue of how do we grow and change as believers. That we can't just say, yeah, 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 I know, I, I know I shouldn't do these things, I know I shouldn't cuss, I know I shouldn't, you know, uh, look at pornography, I know I shouldn't do drugs, I know I shouldn't drink to drunkenness, you know, whatever, whatever person might say, blow up in anger or whatever. You can't just say that. Uh, you have to actually do something uh, as a demonstration that there's genuine spiritual life there. And so it's the doing that manifests what uh, true change has taken place. Uh, another familiar uh, passage, same page basically on, in my Bible, is chapter 1, verse 22, where he says, Be doers of the word, and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. 
Here's a quote from Paul Tripp. I think you can remember this one. You can memorize it pretty quickly. Change has not taken place until change has taken place. (laughs) Change has not taken place until change has taken place. What does that mean? Well, if you think about how sometimes we think about change, coming to a realization of a, a new way of thinking doesn't mean that you've changed. Uh, you know, having that experience where you're, where somebody's talking to you and all of a sudden you realize, oh, I, you know, I just had an epiphany. <laughs> I'm now seeing this completely differently. Uh, there's something about that that we think, I've changed. But no, you haven't changed. Maybe your, your thought about that has changed, but you haven't fully changed yet. Uh, feeling bad about your sin doesn't mean that you've changed. You know, coming under conviction, realizing... Yes, I've done something wrong, and feeling bad about that uh, doesn't mean that we've changed. Um, confessing sin doesn't mean that change has happened. You not only feel bad about something, but then you speak on the basis of that, and, and you confess. You say the same thing that God says. You confess your sin to you know, whoever you need to confess your sin to. That doesn't mean that change has happened. And then you go one step further and you start to change your behavior. And your behavior changes for some period of time. Even that doesn't necessarily mean that change has happened. Why? Because sometimes we go through these cycles in our life where we feel bad. And we apologize. And we change our behavior. And then a little bit of time goes by. And then we go back to our pattern of sin. And then we feel bad. And then we apologize. And we change our behavior after a little bit of time. And then we go back to our, <laughs> you know, we have these cycles that we go through sometimes. And so just the fact of feeling bad, confessing your sin, and, and changing your behavior for some period of time doesn't necessarily mean that change has taken place. Change hasn't taken place until change has taken place. Now, if you're on the first round of, of that cycle, it might very well look like change has taken place, and perhaps it has. But it, it often takes time to discern, has change actually taken place? Um, if a person has had a cycle where, just by way of example, they've gone two months without engaging in a particular sin, well, on a next cycle, if they go one month and they're feeling pretty good, encouraged, yeah, it's been a whole month since I've done this. We can encourage that, but we still don't know if change has taken place because before they've gone two months and then they've gone back to their sin. So, you know, depending on the situation, we really need to be discerning as to how, how can I tell if change has taken place. And sometimes you'll hear someone say, oh, I just know it. I just feel differently now. I think totally differently. And, and I know change is taking place. I, I didn't think this way or feel this way before. And that's where only the Lord knows the heart, right? It's not for us as the person seeking to minister to say, no, you haven't changed yet. Because we don't know. We don't know what the Lord is doing in their life. But we just, I guess the point of what I'm saying is we don't want to comfort ourselves and say, that yes, this person has changed uh, when there still needs to be more evidence that change has indeed taken place. If that, if that makes sense. 
So, uh, change is hard, right? Uh, usually when we are uh, in a pattern of sin that we're seeking to overcome or we're seeking to minister somebody else out of a pattern of sin, that pattern of sin has been part of their life for a very long time. Years, in many cases. Sometimes even decades. And so we, uh, we have to be very uh, wise in how we approach that and not jump too quickly to assume, ha, my job's done. I don't need to be involved in this situation. You know, they've changed radically and, and we're good to go. So uh, we just want to talk a little bit today about um, kind of some big picture principles of how do you move in the direction of bringing about practical change. As we've talked the last couple of weeks, you know, there's that necessary step of renewing the mind, which takes place through conversation uh, when you're when you're in a position of, of helping someone else, you're speaking the truth to them in love, you're helping them to see their situation in a different light. So that's, that's a verbal conversation. But then there's this next step of practical steps of change. So there's some overlap here, but uh, we'll walk through these three steps of, we'll call it uh, establishing a personal ministry agenda. At least that's what Paul Tripp calls it, so we'll call it that too. Uh, establishing a personal ministry agenda. And this is where it can kind of get to feel a little bit more formal. You know, I've really tried to keep the balance as we've walked through this course between, excuse me, formal and informal, and really weighing heavily on, excuse me, on the informal side of things. Knowing that most of you are not um, interested, (laughs) have the desire to become formal counselors in our counseling ministry you know, where you make an appointment with someone once a week or whatever, and, you know, you walk, you meet for about an hour, and you give them homework assignments, and, you know, there's that, a high degree of formality to that. Uh, that's not going to be most of you, and that's fine. It's not supposed to be that way. Uh, we're, we're really emphasizing that in our relationships, in informal ways, we minister to one another. Uh, what we're going to talk about today and next week is going to have more of a formal feel to it, uh, but that's only because there needs to be intentionality. That if change is going to take place, there needs to be intentionality in that. Um, if we're going to overcome patterns and habits of life in our own life or the life of another person, uh, that that doesn't um, that doesn't mean that. Uh, or sorry, let, let me say that again. That doesn't happen accidentally, right? It doesn't happen passively. And so when, you, when you're thinking intentionally, when you're thinking about an agenda, there has to be a purpose and a plan uh, for that. So, three steps here, three steps on this uh, establishing a personal ministry agenda. The first step, uh, and these are all questions for us to consider, what does the Bible say about the information that you've gathered? So in this love, know, speak, do, we've, we've talked about that need to, uh, to know the other person. So you've asked questions, you're learning about them as a person, you're learning about their circumstances, their situation. Then we should be thinking about, if, if we want to be an agent of change in their life, what does the Bible say about the information that's been gathered? And let me just give you some general categories to, to think about. As you're listening to someone share about their difficulty, uh, you can be thinking about what does this person think about themselves? What is their identity that they are holding on to, that they are claiming for themselves? 
uh, speaking with one, someone recently, and this is a very common thing, um, so someone said about themselves, I have an addictive personality. I have an addictive personality. And they, they said that about themselves because of their struggle with substance abuse. And basically what they're saying is my identity, who I am as a person, and you could even say how God has made me. She didn't say that, but um, sometimes somebody might imply that. How I'm designed is I'm, I, I have this tendency toward addiction. Well, there might be truth in how someone has a tendency to sin. We all have different tendencies. But there's a difference between recognizing one's tendencies versus having an identity about who you are as a person. Because if, if it's your identity that I am an, adi- an addict, right, which is what like AA would tell someone that once an addict, always an addict, you, know, you don't have to have a drink for 30 years, but you're still an addict. Mm-hmm. If, if someone has that as an identity, that's going to be very hard to overcome. And they're not going to be thinking the way that God would have them think about themselves. So you want to be listening for and thinking about uh, what is their identity, what does God say their identity is, what, what do they need to um, change in their, in their view of themselves. Uh, priorities would be another category, as this person shares with you about their life. What are they revealing are their life priorities? Uh, what's important to them? What... What are the things they're willing to sacrifice to make? What are the things they're not willing to sacrifice uh, in, in their life? What, what are their priorities? And how would the scripture uh, evaluate their priorities? In a similar way, values. What, what are a person's values? Um, what, what do they deem to be important in life? A third category or fourth category would be uh, morals. And standards. What do they believe is right? What do they believe is wrong? How do they weigh matters of justice? Uh, how does that compare with what the scripture reveals of what's right and what's wrong? Th- those would be just some general categories to consider. And how does what you're learning from the other person, how, how does that compare with scripture? And one of, the ways, one of the ways this is talked about in, in biblical counseling is the difference between a presentation problem versus a, a real problem. A presentation problem is what somebody presents to you as their problem. The real problem is what God says their problem actually is. <laughs> and there's usually a, a difference between those two. It's pretty rare that someone would come into a counseling relationship in our counseling center, counseling conversation, and have a real accurate view of what their problem actually is. Very often, their presentation problem is what's on the outside, right? Their circumstances, the other people in their life, when the real problem is in the heart, uh, at least as a central matter. And so learning to hear and evaluate what you hear from scripture will help you discern okay what's the actual problem here and how can how can we help move toward um, reorienting this person's thinking all right so that's under what does the bible say about the information that has been gathered the second question in this 
establishing a personal ministry agenda is what are God's goals for change for this person and in this situation? What are God's goals for change for this person in this situation? I'll say it again. What are God's goals for change for this person in this situation? And again, there's usually a a significant difference between how a person wants to see things change and how God wants to see things change. Right, we understand that. Our, our desire for change in, in our lives is God just fix everything. <laughs> Make this problem go away. Bring an end to this suffering. You know, give me what I want. <laughs> that way I can not crave sinful things. Or that way I can not be discontent. Uh, we, we usually just, we, we have our own way of thinking about what the solution is, which is radically different than God's goals. Well, let's ask this question. What is God's ultimate goal? What should be our ultimate goal for change? His glory, right? Our, our greatest goal should be to glorify God. Again, remind you of 1 Corinthians 10.31, whether you eat or drink, whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Or 2 Corinthians 5.9, so then whether we are home or away, we make it our aim to please Him. Or Colossians 3.17, which I think says something like, um, whatever you do, do in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, take that more as a paraphrase. Um, our, our motivation for change, our goal for change should be glorifying God. So whatever I'm going through, whether it's a personal struggle for sin, whether it's suffering that I'm seeking to endure, uh, whether it's a decision that needs to be made that I'm seeking wisdom on, my aim should be what will most glorify God. How can I glorify God in, in my response, in my responsibilities in this situation? Uh, but then also, in terms of God's goals for change, behavior. Uh, what are God's uh, behavior goals for a person? Uh, what words need to change in this person's vocabulary and how they speak? How should their speech change, in other words? Uh, how should their actions change? What are God's desires for the actual outward, verbal, or behavioral change that takes place? And of course, his goal is that we uh, exude what kind of behavior in words? Just a big picture. Who should we be imitating? Christ. Christ. Yeah. <laughs> That's right. We should be reflecting the words and the actions of Christ, which of course is all born out of his character. Um, and this is important because sometimes you know a person is simply replacing one behavior for another behavior, but that new behavior isn't necessarily reflecting Christ. It's different, but it's not necessarily like Christ. You know, you could go from screaming at your kids to not talking to your kids. Well, you've changed, and you're not sinning by screaming at your kids, but you're not exactly like Christ in not talking to your kids, or your spouse, or whatever. So we want to know what God's goals for change are for this person in this situation. Not only behavior, but of course, at a deeper level, the heart. What are God's desired changes at the level of the heart? person's beliefs, desires, values, will, uh, what does God want to see change at the heart level? 
So we're thinking about how do we evaluate what we hear based on God's word. We're thinking about what are God's goals for change for this person and in this situation. So then we get to that real practical question, what are biblical methods for accomplishing God's goals for change? What are biblical methods for accomplishing God's goals for change? Because there are, if you will, biblical methods or Uh, Maybe to put it another way, methods that uh, honor the Lord, whether or not they're explicitly stated in Scripture. And then there's methods that are not honoring to the Lord. There's wise steps that a person can or should take to change in their life, to endure suffering. And then there's foolish steps that a person might take uh, to change in their life. You know, if we're ministering to somebody, uh, I think one of the more common things that I hear when people share what they're being told by family and friends in their situation, a lot of it is just really foolish counsel on what you should do, you know, in, in a situation. And there's not a lot of thought given to, uh, does my counsel violate any biblical principles for how this person should work on changing? Uh, either biblical principles or priorities. Uh, Or a person themselves will come up with foolish ways of bringing about change. I mean, just I'll give you one obvious one. Let's say that a a man has, um, he's struggling to provide for his family, to meet all the basics of of life and whatever. And so he's thinking through, how do I I change this? How, How do I improve how I provide for my family? I know, gambling. If I can just... If I can just get a good, I don't even know what you call it, a, new, a transaction or, you know, if I, if I can just bet, you know, do the right bet, my team would win, you know, the underdog or whatever, then everything would, would be fine. We'll be set, right? Um, I've heard that. Believe it or not, I've heard that. Uh, or a different foolish way of solving that problem. Okay, well, I guess that... If I my job doesn't provide enough, I guess that means I need to get another full-time job and work 90 hours a week and just go home and sleep and go to work and go home and sleep and go to work. Well, that isn't wise because that has all kinds of implications for life, right? Where other priorities in life of... Um, you know, presuming they're a husband and a father, presuming they're a member of the church, where all of those things totally get swept aside under this elevated priority, I need to make enough money. So we need to consider what are wise and biblically faithful ways of uh, addressing problems, of solving problems. Also consider under this biblical methods category, that wisdom and grace are needed to balance what you could call baby steps versus radical steps. <laughs> you know, Jesus said, if your right hand causes you to right right hand <laughs> causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. If your right eye causes you to sin, <laughs> I was public schooled, so um, uh, if your right eye causes you to sin, gouge it out, throw it away. Right? So there are some situations where Jesus would say, you need to take radical steps to change. You know, no, 
no baby steps allowed. <laughs> you got to go all the way, hard and fast, and don't look back. You got to make radical steps of change. There are other things that don't require such radical change, or that it wouldn't be wise to take such radical steps, and baby steps are needed. So, for example, uh, in, in biblical counseling, because we're not just trying to solve a problem, we're trying to help a person grow in Christ, one of the key things that we're always trying to do is build into somebody's life uh, personal disciplines, habits of, of uh, Bible reading and prayer and you know, just attendance at church, all the basics of, of Christian life. And um, so it would be easy to say to someone who's, who has no Bible reading habit whatsoever, Okay, I want you to read 10 chapters of the Bible every day and pray for an hour every day. You know, that's really what's going to change your life. Well, I bet if somebody did that, their life would change. I'm pretty convinced that if somebody read 10 chapters of the Bible, if they, read, if they prayed an hour a day, their life would radically change. Is that wise, though? Uh, really, is it realistic? Uh, I, there was a, a season many years ago where I tried this Bible reading plan that was 10 chapters a day, and it took like, I don't know, two hours or whatever it was to, to do it, and I, I didn't last very long. <laughs> I just couldn't sustain it. Right. Uh, and so if you have no habit whatsoever jumping into something like that, it's, you're really setting a person up for failure. And so uh, the way I tend to approach it is I want you to read a psalm a day. So those are, you know, mostly pretty short. Uh, three times a week. So three psalms a week. Uh, that would be a first step that I would encourage someone to do. It doesn't take very much time. And then I'd give them a prayer component to that as well. But uh, just a small entrance into, let's, let's start to build a habit and then do it four times a week. And then do it five times a week. Uh, just so you know, my personal Bible reading habit is five times a week. I think some of you know that with some of the Bible reading plans that we've put out in the past. Um, that gives me the weekend to catch up if needed uh, or whatever. But, um, you know, the Bible doesn't say that I must read the Bible seven days a week. So uh, I'm not trying to get someone to do something or force them to hold a, sta- a standard that the Scripture doesn't give. So just slowly taking baby steps to build new habits into their life. So, again, depending on what the situation is, depending on you know where they're at in life, we need to consider what's a balance between growing uh, step by step, taking baby steps into cultivating habits of change versus taking radical steps of change. And that takes wisdom depending on the situation uh, to consider. And then also, uh, when you think about biblical methods for accomplishing God's goals for change, we need to remember that sanctification is progressive, that nobody changes overnight, right? And uh, when someone has been habitually sinning or when they've been suffering for a long period of time, so they're weighed down by that suffering. You know, attitudes don't change in a second. Habits don't change in a second. Um, sadness, depression don't go away, you know, when they hear uh, an encouraging Bible verse. And so th- there needs to be this recognition that change is progressive. And that requires us to be patient with people. Uh, when they're not changing as fast as we think they should, or when there's failure, hey, you know, uh, I used to sin in this way, you know, every day of the week, now I'm, I'm uh, sinning three days a week. Well, that's, that's progress, that's change. Now, we would, we would hope that there would be complete change instantly, but sometimes it doesn't work that way. So we want to encourage 
ourselves and others with the reality that sanctification is progressive. And of course, that doesn't mean that we take sin lightly, that we don't care if someone continues to battle sin, but uh, we just understand that uh, the Holy Spirit, who is the primary agent of change, works differently in different lives, and He has different purposes. And so since we can't control another person, um, we have to let the Spirit work in their lives according to His timing. All right? So just, again, as, as just general overview, when you're thinking about how can I practically help someone uh, brings uh, practical steps of change in their life, uh, where they've been sinning in specific concrete ways, now they need to change and, and uh, live God's uh, standards and, and purposes in concrete, specific ways. Uh, these are just some, some principles to think through of uh, what kinds of practical steps can I encourage this person to take. We want to make sure that they're not violating biblical principles or priorities, that there's a balance between baby steps and radical steps, and that we remember that change and sanctification is progressive. All right, any, any particular comments or follow-up on any of that? Brian? I think a lot of times when you talk to someone, you try to encourage them to God's Word, and you ask them, so ask them, how do you think, what kind of things could you do in your life to change? I think a lot of times they do know, they just need someone to ask them to think about it. Mm -hmm. And they think about it, and then you encourage them, well, what do you need to do? You need to do that. Apply it. Say you're you're talking about a particular passage or scripture to memorize, but how does that show itself in your life? A lot of times I believe they do know they just don't want to do it. Yeah. So you, they need a little encouragement in that direction. Yeah. So there, it's good they're coming for counseling, but they need to be reminded that we're coming alongside them. Yeah. Maybe simply to remind them of what Scripture says. Right. Remind them what you know already, and encourage you to do it. Yeah. Yeah, no, that's absolutely true. You know, many times, just for the sake of the recording, I'll, I'll summarize what you said. Um, people often know exactly what they need to do they just don't want to do it they're, they're not as motivated to do it and so they they want to see is there some other way to approach this and so i'll often hear people say i thought you would say that <laughs> you know story that you said they're taking the easy way out right trying to find the easiest way to change yeah yeah colleen um i i, I hear everything but I have a question. Yeah. Um, when you're faced with sin in your life, and the Lord causes you to see that your behavior, whatever, is sinful, and you agree with that, and you see it for what it is, and you immediately, whatever that immediate is, you immediately acknowledge, yes, I've sinned against you, and you no longer want to sin against him, and you repent, and you turn from that. That, to me, I can't see where, not that you're not tempted, don't get me wrong, not that you're not tempted, but I see that as an immediate understanding, an immediate change, an immediate, and Christ setting me free from that. Mm -hmm. So that, not that I'm not tempted, Mm-hmm. to do whatever it is again, 
But immediately I realized that's sinning against the Lord and I no longer want anything to do with that. Mm -hmm. Not a gradual, right. oh, okay, well, it is sin, but I'm going to do it three yeah. days a week. And I'm not, no, I'm not, I'm not making <laughs> yeah. fun. Yeah. I, I'm, I'm going to do it three yeah. days a week instead of seven. Yeah. It's an immediate disgust right. and understanding that what yeah. you have been doing yeah. is sin. So is that... Yeah, no, you're right in, in the principle of it, and that would certainly be the ideal, that when a person comes to that realization that, that there's a radical shift in desire, uh, there's an increase in motivation to honor the Lord. What makes sanctification progressive, uh, you know, the obvious is, like I said, the Spirit works in, differently in pe people's lives. Uh, so that's, that's the centrality of it. But... Uh, there's a couple things that I would point out. One is when something has is such a habit in a person's life um, that they they just it's it's muscle memory that they go to alcohol, you know, when they're stressed out. They they go to uh, ice cream when they've had a long full uh, day, and you know, and then after they have ice cream, then they feel bad, and so they they purge. Uh, you know, when they are when they're going to something so habitually. Uh, it, it's just hard to to break that, and so they might have the understanding and, and new understanding of I know I shouldn't do this, but I this this is just what I do. That that can take a, a little bit of time to overcome, uh, and that's where it, it gets really important to cultivate new habits of okay, when you start to feel that urge, what's something different that you can do? So th that um, that's an important step. And we'll talk very specifically next week or. Uh, principally wise of, of that put off, put on dynamic in practical ways. Uh, but the, the other thing that makes change difficult is we might be able to say, yes, I know it's wrong when I do this. I know that's not honoring to the Lord, but there might not yet be a fuller understanding of what is it in my heart that leads me into that. And so lacking that understanding, um, they just naturally go that direction because they haven't yet come to full grips with what, what's going on in their heart. So uh, take pornography, for example. Uh, you know, I don't think there's any Christian alive. Well, uh, I'll take that back. Most Christians understand pornography's sin. Uh, very few Christians would engage in pornography thinking, oh, there's nothing wrong with this. You know, everybody knows pretty much this is wrong, this is a sin. And we understand, at least at a general level, what entices human beings to that sin. God has made us as sexual beings. He's given us cravings and desires. Sin has distorted that, and that tends to move us in the direction of sexual sin. It's been that way from the very beginning of the fall. Uh, so there's, there's sin in us that craves something that God has designed for good, but we distorted it for evil. Uh, and so we have this, again, this general, true understanding. But... Different people have different things going on in their heart that move them in the direction of temptation. And so often when, when someone is getting help for overcoming sexual sin, uh, it's kept at the level of, well, this is sin. This is a distortion of God's design. You shouldn't do it. In fact, here's even some radical steps for change you can take. Um, so, you know, this week, do those, take those radical steps you know, change your desires um, to, you know, wanting God's best for your life, whatever. But you haven't really gotten down to the what 
for an individual person has uh, given them that craving? What, what is it that they're actually craving? Uh, because it's different things for different people. And so if we haven't gotten down to the heart, um, that, that impedes uh, the change that needs to take place. Uh, and so sometimes there can be that acknowledgement, yes, I know this is wrong, I know this is sin, I'm going to confess it as sin, but there hasn't yet been that fuller understanding uh, at, at the heart level that can bring about the right kind of change. And so that just makes change slower. Um, and then some of it is uh, the will, of course, where um, the, the pang of sin uh, hasn't yet uh, shifted the will. And again, that's uh, the Holy Spirit has to work in a person's life to give them the desire, the commitment to overcome sin. Um, and that's where it's hard for us when we're trying to minister to someone is we don't know what's going on in their heart per se because they can say whatever they want in the counseling session, but then if they continue in a pattern of sin, we're like, well, I don't know. I don't know why they keep doing this. <laughs> why do they keep shooting themselves in the foot like this? Uh, well, there's something going on in the heart that, that they're still committed to that sin and not as committed to Christ. And so that's why we've got to keep bringing the truth and keep going to the heart and keep bringing um, the truth to bear uh, in our conversations with them and see if the Spirit will use that. So those would be some main thoughts. Karen? If I'm still tempted, then am I really free? You're not free from the presence of sin, uh, but you are free from the power of sin in the sense that when we're unbelievers, it's like we're chained to the stake of sin, you know, like a dog, and we can, we can move around, but we can't ultimately free ourselves from that stake. We're kept in the circle of sin, but as believers, that chain is broken, and so now we can move outside the circle of sin but there's still something in because of the that we're still in this fleshly bodies that are cursed with sin. We still have this desire to go back to where we're comfortable. So one day we will be ultimately free from temptation, from the presence and the power of sin. But now we're only free from the power of sin, in that we don't have to sin anymore. Okay. Yeah. Okay. So you said that the Holy Spirit works in lives according to His time. So if, if I'm flat out in counseling and I know what I'm doing wrong, but I keep doing it, mm-hmm. the Holy Spirit is not working. Well, or is he just, the Holy Spirit just allowing me just yeah. to run myself into the wall? <laughs> and so like bang, 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 you know? I yeah, mean, well th- this is where we get into the mystery of God's sovereignty and human responsibility, that we don't know how do these things quite fit together. Uh, Scripture gives us general categories like God does harden people's hearts sometimes to show His glory in a particular way uh, because of His purposes for that person, for the people around them. You know, of course, we think of Pharaoh. Um, You know, you think of a guy like Peter who Jesus said to him, uh, Satan has asked permission to... Uh, sift you like wheat and does that mean the whole and obviously he was granted permission so does that mean the holy spirit was not at work in people in peter's uh heart that that he was ultimately rejecting or or denying christ 
Well, he wasn't at work in any way that we would think he should be at work. Um, So what the Spirit is doing in a situation like that, we don't necessarily know, know the activity that's going on other than uh, at a high level that, that God is unfolding his purposes in Peter's life to bring him to that place of restoration and uh, to be one of the primary leaders of the church. Uh, and then, of course, that's written now for us to benefit from. So there's a great mystery in what is the Spirit doing in someone's life when they're not uh, changing, when, when they're not wanting to change, when they continue to fall into sin. Sometimes it can lead to the conclusion that maybe the Spirit isn't in their life in the sense that they're not a true believer. And God would have purposes for, for that. But, um, but we ultimately don't know exactly. Um, you know, there's a lot more we could say about that. But. And also let's just uh, be reminded that it's the, even the Apostle Paul struggled. Someone who actually directly spoke and get uh, revelation from the risen Christ. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Very good. All right. All right. Going to shift gears here to uh, talk about um, responsibility. So we're, when we think about change, uh, one of the questions that can be a struggle is, what am I, as a person who's battling sin, enduring suffering, whatever it is, what am I responsible for before the Lord? What does God expect of me? And there's two circles of responsibility that we need to consider. One circle is things I am responsible for. Uh, this would be the, you know, the revealed uh, will of God. Things that God has made it explicitly clear in Scripture, uh, this is what I'm to do. You know, you're you're uh, a parent. God has commanded you to raise your children in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. You, as a parent, are responsible to do that. Uh, you're an employee. God has revealed in His Word that you are responsible to do your work as unto the Lord, as though you're serving Christ, because that's exactly what you're doing. That's your responsibility. You are to work with excellence, you're, you're to fulfill your responsibilities at work, you're to submit to your employer. Those are things that God has made it very clear in your uh, in, in His Word. Uh, he's made it very clear to us uh, what our personal character ought to be, that we are to put off malice and anger and clamor and slander and bitterness and uh, uh, covetousness and you know just go down the list of all these things we're to put off that should not be part of our character, but rather we're to be loving and patient and kind and gracious and merciful and self-control and you know the fruit of the Spirit and other attributes as well. Uh, God has said it's your responsibility to uh, live according to those qualities. Um, with regard to church, he's made it very clear that we are responsible before the Lord to be good stewards of uh, the gifts that he's given us, to uh, exercise our gifts for the benefit of the body of Christ. We are to meet one another, meet with one another, we're to gather regularly together, we're to worship Christ together, we're to speak the truth to one another, uh, speak the truth in love to one another, we're to encourage one another, you know, all of the one another's, those are things that we are responsible for. And you could, you know, keep going down the list of things that God has revealed in His Word that we are responsible 
to do. With these things that God has given us to do, uh, it's, it comes down to the simple principle that we are to obey. Right? We're to obey the Lord. Now, outside of the things that God has explicitly called us to do, and actually before we move on, if God has called us to do something, what has he done? What, what um, I won't make you guess uh, what I'm thinking. If God has got, called us to do something, if he's revealed that it's his will for us to do it, he has equipped us to do it. He's equipped us with the knowledge of the truth. He's equipped us with uh, the ability to do it, um, the, the will. You know, as Paul says in Philippians 2, 12 and 13, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for God's at work in you both to will and to work. In other words, to give you the ability and the desire to work for his good purposes. So if God has given us the responsibility to do something as revealed by his word, he has equipped us with the ability to do that. Okay? Outside of those things are areas of concern. Things that may or may not per pertain to us directly but which we have no control. We might be concerned about the salvation of our kids, but we have no ability to control that, to, to accomplish that. Uh, as an employee, you might be concerned about the um, overall productivity, success of a company, but within the scope of your particular responsibilities, you're not able to control all the other employees, and you're not able to control the, how people respond to advertisements. You're not able to control how you know, clients respond to the product offerings. You're concerned about all that, for sure. You have those things in your mind of how this is going to happen, but you have no control over those things. Um, God has... These are the things that God has not given you responsibility to do. He's not going to hold you accountable because he's not giving you responsibility. And he also has not given you uh, the ability. Uh, so even if you could, sorry, even if you wanted to do something about it, you couldn't do something about it. You know, a distant example would be uh, some natural disaster happens a world away, and you have great concern about that, but you have no control over it, you're not responsible for it, and you have no ability to, you know, to fix it. You know, except perhaps in a case where you say, I'm going to get on a plane and I'm going to serve you know, in a particularly unique way. Uh, so there's areas that God has made us responsible for. There's areas that we are often very concerned about, but we have no control over. What do we do if we're to obey with the things of responsibility? What do we do with these things that are matters of concern but we don't have the ability to control? That's a practical step. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Let's pray. But in terms of a heart attitude, perhaps? Trust. Trust. Trust and obey. <laughs> Or, a similar word, 
entrust. We are to put those things in the Lord's hands where they belong. Not to try and grab them to ourselves, but to say, Lord, this is in your hands. Trusting that he will work out his purposes according to his will and his way with those things. I'm going to fulfill my responsibilities. I'm going to do the things that God has called me to do that he will hold me accountable for. And I'm going to entrust the things that I have no responsibility for to him. Now this is particularly difficult when you're in a situation that involves, uh, it's not just your own personal, you know, emotional uh, challenges or difficulties, but it, there's, there's other people around that are complicating your circumstances. Uh, there's, you know, things like natural disasters or the economy or things that you have, you have no control over. So you can only do so much, and sometimes what you're able to do, what you're responsible to do, has no impact on the matters of concern. And that, sometimes that's just the way it is. Right? But that's hard, isn't it? Mm-hmm. Uh, you can lose your job, and you can do everything in your power to look for a job, which you would be responsible to do. Going out every day, or these days, going online, looking for jobs, submitting applications. But if nobody's calling you back, <laughs> uh, you're, you have no control over that. So sometimes your obedience, your faithfulness in fulfilling, that's another good word to put here, you need to be faithful. Um, sometimes that has no change uh, on this external circumstances. And sometimes we feel like if my obedience doesn't change my circumstances or the matters of concern, what's the point of my obedience? That's a very common thought. But the reality is, no matter what happens in the matter in the areas of concern, we're still called to be faithful and obey. I was talking to someone recently who's whose grown children uh, are not walking with the Lord, and the words that came out was, "If if I can't control my kids' behavior now that they're out of the house, what's the point of having spent all of this time as they're growing up and all of this money?" investing in their education and all of this energy, you know, teaching them the truth, if they're just going to walk away. What's the point of that? Well, the point is, that's what God calls you to do. <laughs> right? And uh, I was reminding this precious saint, uh, story's not over. You don't know what the Lord's going to do in the future. All right. Now, here's here's the thing. Oh, God. Go quick here. Sometimes what we do is <laughs> we take as little responsibility as possible and we say I can't control anything so I'm going to let go and let God Jesus take the wheel <laughs> right and we're, we just say you know I, I can't uh, I can't do anything I'm not responsible for anything so uh, God, God has to change things uh, I had a friend when I was in, uh, I think it was, I think I was in college, somewhere around that time of life, a uh, friend from high school, and uh, visiting my hometown, and I uh, said, oh, you know, what's going on in your life? What, what, what are you doing? Uh, and 
he said something along the lines of, well, I'm just waiting for God to direct me, you know, to my next season of life. So, go to school, working, I'm just waiting for God. <laughs> I mean, that was the attitude. It's like, you've got to do something. <laughs> if God's going to move you, you've got you to move or be moving for him to direct you in some way. <laughs> so, we have to look out for someone who, you know, ourselves or someone else who has that mentality of, uh, I have very little responsibility. I'm just going to wait for God. You know, whether it's with regard to work, I'm just waiting for God to give me a job. Well, are you applying anywhere? Oh, no, I'm just waiting for God to give me a job. Um, you know, what what steps are you taking to overcome that sin? Well, I'm just entrusting it to the Lord. Well, you got to do something, right? Or let's see if any of you would resonate with this. You say I'm responsible for everything. <laughs> I get to, I, it's my responsibility to control everyone. And so I'm going to make sure that everything in my life is sorted and organized the way that God, uh, the, the way that I think it should be, and that's how I know that I'm being faithful. Well, obviously that's not right either. That's failing in the opposite direction. And I don't have enough space here for an equal size cir circle. But then there's others who are just like, I have no idea <laughs> what I'm supposed to be doing, what I'm responsible for. Whether someone has or takes no responsibility, all responsibility, uh, or they're just confused, that's where we have to speak the truth in love and help them work through what things are they responsible for, what things are, what things are they not responsible for, they just need to entrust to the Lord and, and clear up that confusion. Uh, this... This person will likely struggle with um, uh, just you know being lazy, obviously, and just not doing anything. Uh, they're they're being irresponsible. Uh, person over there will struggle with anxiety uh, and anger because nothing is working out the way they want it to be. Uh, and then, of course, the person who's confused is just wrestling in their heart. So we have to recognize that Scripture calls us to be responsible for some things in which we are to obey and be faithful in. And then there's other things that we're just to entrust to the Lord's care. Any comments or questions about that? So again, these are things that we have to process ourselves. If you're, if you're being used by the Lord to minister to somebody else, you need to think through what, what does this look like in this person's life? What things can I help them take responsibility for that they are responsible for? What are the things I need to remind them to entrust to the Lord and not take to themselves? And how can I help them? So next week we'll get even more specific in terms of the doing of change. Yes, Don. So your circles remind me of the book Boundaries uh -huh. uh, by Thompson and Cloud. Uh -huh. Have you read that? I haven't. Okay. You seem hesitant. Yeah. I highly recommend it. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know. If well, it's okay to recommend. <laughs> there's uh, that's a that's a longer conversation. Okay. Yeah. And uh, the the general principle of um, well, like any book, there's probably multiple facets of the book that you know have measures of helpfulness and measures of concern. So. Uh, read with this with the sermon. I'll just leave it there. All right, let me pray.